Welcome to the Plain Sense Podcast, where the life-changing Word of God is made accessible and understandable to all. Here is your host, Dr. Joel Madasu. In the Septuagint, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, one of the phrases is rendered as mighty counselor of God, while in the Hebrew text, it is rendered as mighty God. Why is that? Why did the Septuagint render the phrase uh, mighty God as mighty counselor of God? In this episode, Dr. Michael Heiser explains us the reasons behind it and also explains what Septuagint is and helps us understand this issue better because I'm saying it an issue because this verse actually played a role in some people's lives um, to the point of them claiming that Christ is not God based on uh, the Septuagint rendering of Isaiah 9-6. Dr. Heiser is scholar in residence for Faith Life Corporation, the makers of Logos Bible software. Dr. Heiser earned his PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages and holds uh, an MA in Ancient History and Hebrew Studies. He can also do translation work in roughly a dozen ancient languages including Biblical Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs and Ugaritic cuneiform. He also specializes in Israelite religion, especially Israel's divine council, contextualizing biblical theology with Israelite and ancient Near Eastern religion, uh, Jewish uh, binitarianism, biblical languages, ancient, ancient Semitic languages, textual criticism, comparative philology, and Second Temple period Jewish literature. In addition, Dr. Heiser was named the 2007 Pacific Northwest Regional Scholar by the Society of Biblical Literature. So we have a special guest, and I hope that you will enjoy this podcast. Dr. Heiser, thank you for joining me on this podcast, and I'm honored to have you here um, in this session. One of the questions that I got asked is from the Septuagint saying that Septuagint did not say Christ is God and why would I believe in Hebrew scriptures that is in Hebrew language well Septuagint doesn't say that Christ is God uh, so there, therefore I won't believe that Christ is God now how would you explain what Septuagint is and how reliable it is even for today's um, students that are learning Greek for example and how they can use it and rely on its um, authenticity and also how would you answer the um, Isaiah 9-6 where sure. it says that he is the mighty counselor of God? Mm-hmm. Well, this, the, the short version of this is the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was done in what we call the Second Temple Period, otherwise known as the Intertestamental Period. Uh, that's roughly, to use round numbers, 500 BC to 100 AD, even though it ends with 70 AD when the second temple that was built, you know, 516 or so BC is destroyed in 70. But let's just use round numbers, 500 to 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Septuagint itself within that period was completed, you know, scholars figure anywhere from 300 to 200 BC. Uh, it wasn't all created at the same time. The Torah was first and then other portions of the Hebrew Bible were translated into Greek. But it existed, um, you know, prior to the first century AD, the period of Jesus and the apostles. Mm -hmm. And it it became the 
the Bible of the early church because the church had such a, a significant Gentile proportion in it. Uh, those people could only read Greek. They could not read Hebrew. They did not speak Aramaic, so they didn't use Aramaic translations, which are known as Targums. So the Septuagint became, again, the focal point for learning and hearing scripture to the early church. And it wasn't just Gentiles. You had Jews during the period who, this is the period after Alexander's you know, Hellenizing of the ancient world, you know, spreading Greek culture. So lots of Jews read Greek. Everybody read Greek. It was like English is today, sort of the lingua franca, you know, this worldwide language that people could utilize if they needed to. So the Septuagint, you know, became a pretty big deal uh, historically. Roughly, you know, people who, who count these sorts of things would say eh, maybe 70, 75 percent of the time that the New Testament writers quote or allude to the Old Testament, they're actually using the Septuagint. And again, they're not using it because it's better than the Masoretic text. They're using it because it's Greek. You know, they, they could quote Hebrew, you know, till they're blue in the face and nobody's going to understand them. Mm. And why try to translate on the fly when you have a translation in Greek? Mm -hmm. It's just so much easier to use it. So that's what they did. So there's no sort of, you know, we have to, we have to not use the traditional text because it's somehow inferior you know, to the Septuagint. There's nothing like that going on. You know, we should get into the woods a little bit more here. You know, I, I have found that although a lot of people have heard of the Septuagint, uh, a lot of people don't really know sort of, you know, what it is <laughs> and, and, you know, how, how we even know about it. So, let, let, you know, we'll, we'll do it the, the, the easy way. This is how I used to present it in, in, in class when I taught. Prior to 1947, scholars knew there were three sort of editions or versions of the Hebrew Bible. Hmm. There was the traditional, you know, Jewish text called known as the Masoretic text. There was a Hebrew text that was used by whoever translated the Septuagint, because you can see when you read the Septuagint, there were places in it that it would be hard to go from the Hebrew of the Masoretic text and get that Greek. So the theory is that the text, the Hebrew text that was used to produce the Septuagint differed slightly uh, in, in either content or maybe order of chapters, that sort of thing mm. from the traditional Hebrew text. So there were, there were at least two. And then the third one was the Samaritan Pentateuch, which really isn't important for our question. It was just the Torah. The Samaritans had their own version of the of the Hebrew Torah, and it's easy to spot because they change place names. You know, like instead of Mount Zion or Moriah, they would substitute Mount Gerizim according to their religion. This is where Abraham offered Isaac and all that. So one of those is really easy to spot because they just change the details of stories uh, to align with their their beliefs. So that was before 1947, and scholars could only theorize that there was a Hebrew text used to produce the Septuagint that was different than the Masoretic text. It was sort of just in theory because of what they were looking at in Greek. Hmm. After 1947, of course, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered. And lo and behold, Hebrew texts were found that supported what you read in the Septuagint. And of course, Hebrew texts were found that aligned with the traditional you know, Jewish community text, the Masoretic text. Um, you know, so the Septuagint has a Hebrew point of origin. 
it's not just sort of something created, you know, out of whole cloth. Mm -hmm. Should also say something about the term Masoretic text. You know, what we think of as the Masoretic text was actually created in 100 AD. Okay, in some ways, in response to the Septuagint. Mm. Uh, now, the Dead Sea Scrolls have Hebrew texts that are exactly like what we think of as Ma the Masoretic text. Some of them are slightly different. What, what, what we think of as the Masoretic text, again, created in about 100 AD, is the result of a, a standardizing effort. Uh, think of it this way. We've got 100 English translations in our Christian bookstores. What if we were in a community where we had one religious authority that said, you know, we're kind of sick of this. Mm -hmm. We want to take all these English translations and create an official, a single official English translation that we will insist that our community use from this point forward and all these other translations can just fade away. That's what, that's what the Jewish community did around hundred AD. They, there were a lot of manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. Some of them again, look like what underlies the Septuagint. A lot of them didn't. It's because it was hand copied. Every synagogue had one. They're not always identical because it's a hand copying process. So they just decided, you know, we're, we need to come up with an official Hebrew text, specifically one that would help us combat the Christians and their Septuagint, hmm. because there were parts of the Septuagint, contrary to your questioner, that Christians would utilize frequently to support the deity of Jesus. And the Jewish community didn't really like that. And they're circling the wagons. This is a normal response. It's nothing sinister. It's just what you would do to preserve your community. And that's what they did. They just, they created a standard text that from 100 AD onward to today, that's the official text of the Jewish community. And we call it the Masoretic text because the scribes who created it were called Masoretes. Mm -hmm. And then they handed that tradition down. That's where it gets its name. So back to the Septuagint. Again, it's, it's the Septuagint is not, you know, there, neither text is inherently superior to the other. You know, there are Jewish, you know, folks or, you know, people who sort of are in Hebrew roots movements or whatever it is. Uh, even traditional evangelicals have this sort of mythology that, you know, somehow the Masoretic text is like this unending text from the hand of the prophets all the way to our desktops here in, in Bible college class. Mm -hmm or seminary. It's just not true. All of these texts, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they hit the same chronological wall, you know, again, roughly 300 BC. So we can't even say that one is older than the other, because we don't have manuscript data older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were all in use during this intertestamental period. Hmm. But they do, they do, you know, disagree, they do differ in, in points. So there's no inherent superiority of one to the other. There's no way to prove one was, you know, better than the other. It's just that different communities adopted one or the other. In the Septuagint case, it's because people read Greek. Hmm. It just happened to be created from a text that's somewhat different than the one that wound up being the official Jewish community text. Hmm. It's a, you know, it's just a feature of history. There's no... There's no driving, you know, ideology behind one or the other, you know, that would demonstrate its superiority. So scholars, what, what scholars typically do is, in our example in Isaiah 9, 
what typically happens is, you know, a scholar will look at, at something like this. Uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll quote the Nets translation of the Septuagint. This is the New English translation of the Septuagint. You can get it on Amazon or you can get it in PDF for free. Okay. Uh, just, just Google N-E-T-S English translation Septuagint or something like that. You'll find the web page. But that translates Isaiah 9, 6 this way. He is named messenger of great counsel, for I will bring peace upon the rulers and health to him. Uh, I would actually say it's a, it's a, a better translation is he, he will be called the messenger or the angel. Mm. Okay, it's angelos is the word there of the great counsel, for I will bring peace upon the rulers and health to him. Now that's quite different than the Masoretic text, the traditional Hebrew text upon which our English Bibles are typically, you know, mm-hmm. based on, you know, that would be his name shall be called, uh, again, this is my translation, Counselor of Wonders. It's usually Wonderful Counselor in English Bibles, mm-hmm. but it should be Counselor of Wonders or Planner of Wonders because the, the Hebrew word there it gets translated counsel or counselor is a participle. Mm-hmm. Participle is a verbal adjective. So it's somebody doing something descriptively. Mm-hmm. And then the noun wonders. So counselor or planner of wonders, the mighty God and the everlasting father. So your question, you know, suggested that the Septuagint rendering that doesn't mention mighty God, mm-hmm. doesn't mention everlasting father, uh, would somehow be a, a way to disprove the deity of Jesus. Now, I, I should say out of the gate, again, and this is, I want this, this, I mean to be more gentle than I'm going to sound here, but that's a silly idea, okay? Mm. The deity of Jesus does not depend on one verse and one translation in one verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I, I wrote a book called The Unseen Realm, and I spend three whole chapters in this book, which is derived from my own dissertation. And I didn't go to, you know, a, a sort of a, an ideological Bible college I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Mm-hmm. And that is not an evangelical friendly program. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and this is, this is part of my dissertation, but I, there are lots of places in the Old Testament you can go to establish the idea that the Israelites had a concept of God as more than one person simultaneously, a Godhead. Mm-hmm. And that became the focus of my dissertation. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of the some of that because I, I, I do think that the Septuagint translation actually enforces mm. the deity of Christ. It, you, you can make a very good argument that, that producing that kind of translation, there was something going on in the translator's head mm-hmm. that isn't so obvious to us, but would have been obvious to a number of people in the Jewish community mm. uh, at the time. But generally, when scholars come across a, a passage like this that, that's quite a bit different, they'll go one of two directions they'll say, good grief, you know, that, that Greek just doesn't look like any of the Hebrew in the Masoretic text. So it must be the case that here we have an instance where the translation known as the Septuagint, those translators had a completely different Hebrew starting point than the Masoretic text. And that, that could certainly be the case here because it is quite different. The text just could have been different here. That's certainly possible. The other option is to look at something like this and say, well, usually when the Hebrew underneath 
again, that was the starting point of the Septuagint, and the Masoretic text are usually pretty close. You know, they, they, they vary a little bit, you know, a suffix here, a pronoun here, a verb form there, maybe the order of verse, you know, but they're usually pretty close. So since this is so different, either, as I said already, we have a different text here, or they'll just say the translator just sort of interpreted what he was reading and put that interpretive, those interpretive ideas into his translation. Mm. So you go one of two directions. Now, we, we could end our little episode here and say, that was a different text. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's easy because right. it's so different. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't mean that, that one is better than the other. It's just a different text. In fact, you could say that the Septuagint took out the stuff mm. that would enforce the deity of Christ. Mm. Okay, so it, it would be hard to say the Septuagint argues against it. You, you could just as well turn it on its head and say somebody changed the Hebrew text. You know, didn't <laughs> like the idea. I mean, you could do stuff like that, but ultimately we don't know. Right. We don't even know if there was a different text. But the more interesting trajectory... Uh, is, well, what if, what if the text was basically the same and the writer was thinking certain thoughts that led him to produce something like he will be called the messenger or the angel of mm -hmm. the great council? Mm -hmm. what, what, if, what if that's the case? Mm -hmm. That raises the question, well, how in the world would you get there? Mm -hmm. how, how could you take, you know, counselor or planner of wonders and mighty God, and everlasting Father, and think of an angel. Mm -hmm. I mean, how could you make those, those jumps? Mm -hmm. It's actually not that hard. <laughs> you know, and, and here again, we have to know a little bit about our, our Hebrew Bible. So mm -hmm. well, let's just, you know, again, think with me. Again, we're, we don't know exactly what happened, but this is very well what could have happened. Mm -hmm. That little phrase, wonderful counselor or counselor or planner of wonders mm -hmm. actually shows up. It's in Hebrew, it's Pella Yoetz. Mm -hmm. That combination of words occurs elsewhere in Isaiah. For instance, in Isaiah 28, 29, we read this. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So there you have wonderful, both these terms, wonderful and counselor associated with Yahweh of hosts. That, that's pretty plain. In Isaiah 29, 14, we get God doing wonderful deeds. Again, the same Hebrew term in, in Isaiah 9, 6. Mm -hmm. It says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things upon or with this people with wonder upon wonder. Three times you get that word there. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 25, 1 says, O Lord, you know, the divine name Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Mm -hmm. Plans, and there's that Ya'at's mm -hmm. word, formed of old, faithful and sure. So these terms are very clearly associated with God himself, you know, Yahweh himself. So the question is, well, is there any angel that's also associated with this language? And oh, yes, there is. <laughs> yes, there is. Uh, there are a couple of passages that are of importance here, specifically the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, mm -hmm. is associated with these, these Hebrew terms. In, uh, in Judges chapter uh, 13, this is the, 
the the angel comes and announces Sam Samson's birth. Mm-hmm. We we get this. This is uh, Judges thirteen eighteen. The angel of the Lord said to him, and this is Samson's father Manoah, "Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful?" Mm-hmm. Okay, there's that term. So Manoah took the young goat with the gra- the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord to the one who works wonders. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Now you could say the one who works wonders is a reference to God, mm-hmm. but who works the wonder in the passage? It's the angel. And whose name is wonderful in the passage? It's the angel. Right. Uh, Exodus 15. And this is an important one because it's right after the, the events of the Red Sea. This is the song of Moses celebrating God's victory over the gods of Egypt and the Red Sea. Moses says this, Who is like you, O Lord, O Yahweh, among the gods, among the alien? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Mm. Same term that we get in Isaiah 9. Exodus 3.20, you go back before the Exodus event, you know, before the Red Sea. God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders. There it is again that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Now, this really only matters if the angel of the Lord and Yahweh can be somehow co-identified with each other. Hmm. Okay, and again, this is the content that, again, I I had in my dissertation, I put in Unseen Realm. So to explain this to people, I'll I'll give them the quick version. I'm not going to go through three whole chapters (laughs) because there's a lot of data for this. If you go to Exodus 3, everybody knows the story. Maybe they've seen Ten Commandments on TV, uh, Moses in the burning bush. The question is, who is in the bush? Mm. And if you actually read Exodus 3 and verse 2, it says, An angel of Yahweh appeared to him, to Moses, in a blazing fire out of a bush. Mm -hmm. And in verse 4, we have, When Yahweh saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So who's in the bush? There's two in the bush, Mm -hmm. the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh. Uh. Now, if you look at that as a backdrop, again, later on, we just read Exodus 3.20, Uh where God says, I'm going to do wonders in Egypt. And of course, we know that the angel is the one whose name is Wonderful, Uh who is the doer of wonders in Judges chapter 13. But if we keep going in Exodus, when we hit Exodus 23, this is after the law has been given, God you know, says to Moses, he takes him aside and says, well, I'll, I'll just read you the passage here for your listeners here. Sure. In Exodus 23, God says to Moses, I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have made ready. Pay heed to him and obey him. Do not defy him, for he will not pardon your offenses. Since my name is in him. Mm. Now you have to understand something that Old Testament scholars call the name theology to, to sort of get what's going on with this verse. If we go to passages like Deuteronomy 12, this, is, this actually happens a lot in Deuteronomy. God refers to the, you know, the Israelites and says, hey, I'm going to take you into the land to the place where I will choose to put my name or I will choose to establish my name. The point is not 
that God's going to take the Israelites into the land, find a spot in the dirt, and then scrawl four consonants there. Hmm. Choosing to establish my name and the place where I will set my name is a reference to the temple. Hmm. Okay, the name is another way to refer to God himself. I, when I was in grad school, I had, you know, University of Wisconsin, you know, most of our professors were Jewish. We only had one, though that would sort of stress out if we accidentally used the divine name in class. I see. So he told us, you know, the first day he said, now look, when we're reading text in class, if you come across the four consonants, you have two options. One is to say Adonai, which means Lord. Mm -hmm. And the other one is to say Hashem, Mm. which means the name. The name is a way to refer to God himself, both today among serious Jews and in the Bible. In Psalm uh, 20, verse 1, we, we read, May the Lord, may Yahweh, answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Isaiah, same book as Isaiah 9 Isaiah 30, verse 27 says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar. In blazing wrath with heavy burden, his lips full of fury, his tongue like devouring fire. I mean, you get this, you get the name personified. Now, trusting in the name is not, you know, the Israelite soldiers aren't going to stand there, you know, ready for battle. You know, some trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So here come, you know, the, the Philistines or whoever. They're not going to stand there and shout four consonants at them. Mm. They're not going to stand there and shout Yahweh at them. They're not going to scrawl it in the ground and say, well, I bet you won't you know, walk over that. They're just going to get run over and killed. Mm. Trusting in the name is another way of saying, of talking about trusting in God mm. himself. So if you go back to Exodus 23, the angel that God says he is sending before the Israelites into the promised land, to complete the exodus from Egypt. When the, when the verse says in Exodus 23, my name is in him, in this angel. It's another way of saying, I am in that angel. Hmm. He is me and I am him. I am in him. My presence, my deity is in this angel. That's why don't mess with him. Hmm. He won't pardon your transgressions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't mess with him. And there are places in the Torah where this, you know, this, this point is made, you know, over and over. I, I like to put it this way. If you asked, you know, a, a, somebody who has a little bit of Bible under their belt, if you said, hey, who was it that took the Israelites from Egypt into the promised land? Who did that? Okay, most people would say, well, God did that. All right. If you actually look in the Hebrew Bible and you look, for all of the, you know, the places where this kind of thing is described, you know, taking them out of Egypt, bringing them to the land, you actually get several options. You get Yahweh, you get Elohim. In Deuteronomy 4, 35 to 37, you get Panim, the presence of God did this. And then you get some passages that say it was the angel that did that. So, you know, people you know, would ask, well, I'm confused now, Mike, who, who delivered the Israelites from Egypt and took them to the promised land. Was it God, you know, Elohim? Was it Yahweh? Was it the presence of God or was it the angel? And the answer is yes. Hmm. 
Okay, they're, they're all interchangeable. And the name, the angel, all of them, they're interchangeable. Judges chapter 2, verse 1 makes this explicit about the angel. It says, the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from Egypt. I took you into the land which I had promised you on oath to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. This is the angel talking. Hmm. Now, I don't know how much plainer it can be. The angel and, and, and Yahweh himself are, they're different, but yet they're the same. Mm. The same way that people talk, you know, Christians talk about Jesus and his relationship to God the Father. Well, Jesus is God, but he's not the Father. Well, how can he be God? Well, because other passages say he is, but he also prays. You know, you have this, this sort of, again, two persons you, you, know, you can bring in the Holy Spirit here and it, it becomes a three, you know, person conversation. You have two that are the same, but yet different. So that idea for Jesus and the Father is the same idea, the same sort of tension that you get in the Old Testament with God and the angel. This is, again, explicit in Genesis 31. This is when, when Jacob is, you know, trying to deal with Laban and Laban has been cheating him out of, you know, flocks and herds. You know, then he has the you know, this uh, this notion of you know how to how to interbreed them to multiply his flocks and Laban's flocks don't don't multiply. Mm-hmm. He gets this instruction from God, but in Genesis 31 we read this. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. And here's the next verse, verse 13. The angel of God says, I am the God of Bethel. Hmm. Now what happened at Bethel? This is that, that was the first location where Jacob encountered Yahweh. You just go back a few chapters in Genesis and read it. He builds an altar to Yahweh there. He offers a sacrifice. And here you have the angel saying, I am the God of Bethel. Hmm. My, my favorite, I'll give, I'll give you one more. My favorite passage for this in connection with the angel is Genesis 48. Hmm. And this is one that practically everybody misses. If you have a Jehovah's Witness come by your door or you're talking to one in in a friendly way, this is a great passage to take to them Mm -hmm. because this is not in the script. (laughs) So in Genesis 48, Jacob is blessing Joseph's children before he dies. And we know the story about how, you know, he wants to cross the hands and, you know, Jacob, you know, doesn't let him, Joseph, correct him and all that. Mm-hmm. And that's the part we tell in Sunday school. But what we don't tell people is what he actually prays. <laughs> so here's what he prays. It, it says, but Israel, okay, Jacob, again, that's Jacob's name. It, mm-hmm. God had changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, thus crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, saying, here's the prayer. There are three stanzas in the prayer. Hmm. The God and Hebrew, the Hebrew there is Ha Elohim, the God in whose ways my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked second stanza, the God who has been my shepherd from my birth to this day. Third stanza, you expect the God who did something else, you know, to complete the three parts of the prayer. That isn't what you get. Hmm. It says the angel Mm. who has redeemed me from all harm. And here's the kicker. May he bless these boys. 
The verb in Hebrew is singular. In other words, you can't translate it, may they bless. Mm. You must translate it, may he bless. And you say, well, which one? Which one does Jacob want to bless Joseph's children? Is it, is it God or is it the angel? And the answer again is yes. <laughs> They're fused together here. Mm-hmm. Now, scholars, you know, will take some of these references and say, well, it was standard protocol for, for messengers, which is the term, you know, that gets translated angel as well, to pretend or sort of be seen as the person who's sending them. And that's why we get the first person language, Mike. The angel's not really the God of Bethel. You know, I, my answer to that is, well, that's wonderful. Except it just doesn't work in Genesis 48 because the angel never says anything. <laughs> this is Jacob's assessment <laughs> of the episode in his life. <laughs> Jacob is the one fusing the two together. <laughs> so you have the angel and Yahweh. They're different, but yet they're the same. <laughs> And, you know, with, with the Jehovah's Witness illustration, the, the, when I actually did this, I, I said, now look, are you sure that Jehovah is not an angel? Because, of course, they reject that. Well, angels are lesser. They're created. There's only Jehovah, blah, 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 blah. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. I mean, I asked him like three or four times. Are you positive? Mm-hmm. And then I took him to Genesis 48 and read it to them mm-hmm. and pointed, you know, to the verb in Hebrew and all this kind of stuff. And I said, now you have a problem. (laughs) Either Jehovah is an angel or this angel just happens to be Jehovah. Either way, you get to be wrong in your theology. Right. So which would you prefer? Again, that's not in the script. And and Mm -hmm. I bring it up and I I go through this again to make the point. Mm -hmm. If you're a Jew who understands what you're looking at in the Torah, Mm -hmm in regard to the angel, the specific angel who is identified as God, who has the name, the presence of God within him. And if this is what's in your head, when you look at Isaiah 9, and you're thinking about God in human form, born you know, through this child, mm-hmm. that is math you can do. Well, we're, you know, here the text says, you know, the baby's going to be born, and we have, we in effect have God in human form, wonderful counselor. Oh, yeah, you know, I remember back in, in that Samson story, the angel was called wonderful, mm. and God was called wonderful and doing wonderful things. And, and here we have God as a, as a man in, in this Isaiah passage. Do we get that elsewhere? In the, oh, yeah, that's in the Torah. You know, the angel was, was God in human form in the Torah. So how do I want to translate this in Isaiah 9? Well, maybe what we have here is, you know, another messenger, mm-hmm. some, something like the angel from God who is God. And so why don't we just say, you know, his name will be called the messenger or the angel of the great council. Mm-hmm. When you say, well, where do you get counsel from? Psalm 82. Mm-hmm. God, Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. God takes his stand in the divine council, the Adat El. In the midst of the gods, Elohim, he passes judgment. Mm. Psalm 89 has the same thing. Who is like you know, the Lord? Who is like Yahweh among the sons of God? Psalm 82, the, the, the plural Elohim of Psalm 82, verse 1, if you go down to verse 6, they're referred to as sons, plural, mm-hmm. of the Most High. Well, there is only one Most High, so that they're sons of God, and they're called Elohim in Psalm 82, verse 1. 
They're called Elohim in Psalm 82, verse 6. So here you have a council of God with other members of the heavenly host. All Elohim means is a member of the spiritual world. Mm. You know, the, the, we're trained to see the letters G, O, and D. And our, we, our brain defaults to, oh, G, the letters G, O, and D mean a specific set of unique attributes. Okay, that is not the way biblical writers thought about Elohim. How do we know? Because they use Elohim to label four or five other things that are not the God of Israel. Mm. That alone tells you they are not thinking about a unique set of attributes. First Samuel 28, 13. You know, when the, when the medium there, you know, to, to her shock, gets the, the spirit, the, the disembodied, you know, Samuel, she says, I see an Elohim coming up out of the ground. And Saul says, what does he look like? You know, <laughs> they have the conversation. Yeah. And the content of the conversation is, are things that Samuel had said earlier, you know, when he was alive. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the disembodied human dead are not at the same level as the God of Israel. You know, no Israelite's going to think my dead baby or my dead mom, my dead dad, my dead aunt is mm-hmm. on the same level as the God of Israel with attributes. No. Again, they're, they're, not, they're not theological idiots. Okay, they just aren't. You know, you, you have the gods of the nations referred to as Elohim. Did the biblical writers think they were all the same? Like there's nothing different about Yahweh? It's obviously not. Deuteronomy 32:17, the Shadim, you typically translated demons. They're called Elohim. Again, you, you have things called Elohim in the Hebrew Bible that are not the God of Israel. Mm. They're not thinking of attributes. All an Elohim is is a spiritual being. That's all it is. Being who's, who's by nature is disembodied, a member of the spiritual world. So we as, as Christians, and, you know, certainly as Jews, we believe that there is a spiritual world. There are spiritual, spirit beings in that world. So in, in, in that world, there are lots of Elohim, but there's only one Elohim who is Yahweh. And how is he distinguished? Not with the word Elohim. He's distinguished by the way he's described. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's the lone creator. All this stuff. And those attributes are denied to all other Elohim. Mm. Yahweh is species unique. So this idea that God and his counsel and God himself in the Torah sent a specific messenger who appeared as a man, but yet he was God. If this is floating around the head of the translator of the Septuagint in Isaiah 9, whether he had a different text or the same text, you can get to the same point. Mm-hmm. It, so it really doesn't matter if he had a different text or not. What he has is he has the theology of the Torah in his head. Mm. We have God come as man, and mm. that has precedent in the Torah through the angel of Yahweh. So to, to the total contrary of the assumption that the Septuagint of Isaiah 9 denies the deity of Jesus. And you can only explain the wording of Isaiah 9 in the Septuagint if you believe that Yahweh showed up as a man in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And then the only question is, did New Testament writers ever dip into that idea? Mm. Oh, they certainly did. Jude has Jesus as the one delivering the people from it from Egypt and taking him into the promised land. Mm. I thought that was the angel. I thought that was Yahweh. I thought that was the presence. I thought that was Elohim. The answer is, yep, it was. 
mm-hmm. again, it, they're interchangeable. Mm-hmm. You get the word of the Lord mm-hmm. in John 1, 1. People, you know, I, it, it just irritates me to no end when, when I hear things like, well, John was obviously exposed to Platonic philosophy or he's influenced by the Gnostic community. Okay. No, I'm sorry. He knew his Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Because look at Jeremiah 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and he is called by Jeremiah Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but he reaches out his hand and touches the prophet. Mm-hmm. This is an embodied, you know, the embodied God mm-hmm. called the word of the Lord. It happens mm-hmm. in 1 Samuel 3. It happens in other passages. You know, so John, when he writes about in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. His, his Jewish readers already have these conceptual categories in their head. Mm-hmm. They, they've seen something like that before in their own Bible. And it's connected back to the angels. So, I mean, you get a lot of, there's, there's a lot packed in there in, in what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. But the point is that whether the, the translator of the Septuagint in Isaiah 9 had the same text as the Masoretic text, you can see how he could connect these dots. Doer of wonders, mighty God, okay? The, the everlasting Father who is the Father figure, you know, God in, in heaven. You know, how he could sort of look at that and think about that and come out with God coming back to earth as man in the form of this child. You can connect those dots. Mm. But, you know, to be fair, he may have had a different text. And isn't that interesting? Because if he had a different text that said all those things, then you have the Jewish community changing the text Mm. to get away from the deity of Jesus Mm. in that particular instance. So rather than, than this being a problem for Christian theology, to me, this is a really good illustration of how a Jew could have been thinking those thoughts. Mm. I almost asked if the term counselor in the mm-hmm. is connected with um, Psalm 82. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I thought, no, that's a different topic. <laughs> Let's it, stay in here. It, the, the, the verb there is to give counsel okay, or, or to plan something. Um, it's not, that lemma doesn't show up in Psalm 82, but it shows up in other passages associated with God, you know, giving counsel either to prophets or again to, you know, other agents, but it's not in Psalm 82. Mm-hmm. Well, this is um, really, really helpful. Thank you for being, even though I, I, I said for the layman, but there's depth, there's depth that I, I think uh, you may even go into deeper analysis but you can tell your listeners that i'm really impressed with this question (laughs) (laughs) sure sure thank you thank you so much for your time and for explaining this this matter because i think this is uh, a a big deal because a lot of a lot of people that are questioning the deity of christ is based on this on this verse um but i want to help them see the truth and what's behind it and and how to make a better decision by knowing the truth instead of just yeah, your your listeners should know. And again, if, if any if any of your listeners out you know outside of your, your prison ministry you know happen to hear this, you know they can get unseen realm and get lots of you know funny trails 
to other scholarly resources. This isn't just Mike. I mean, it, this is actually a whole field mm. of New Testament scholarship that, that usually goes by a term like early Jewish binitarianism mm. or, or early Jewish Christology, something like that. And there, there's, a, there's a book by a guy named Charles Gieschen called Angelomorphic Christology, where he goes through the entirety of Second Temple Jewish literature and talks about who they thought the second power in heaven was. Because all of this is related to the Jewish theology of two powers in heaven, mm. which used to be part of Jewish theology until the second century AD. So they, they declared the idea of two Yahweh figures a heresy at the same time that they standardized the Masoretic text. Mm. And that's not a coincidence. They're, they're, they're trying, again, to protect their community, they don't want to lose people in their community to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Alan Siegel's book, it was written in 1977, is the fundamental research work for this. Siegel was a Jew. He recently passed away. Uh, he taught at uh, Brandeis. Again, he taught rabbinics there. Mm -hmm. And his book is called The Two Powers in Heaven. And, and what he does is he traces in rabbinic writings um, the idea of two Yahweh figures and when it became heretical to believe that. And that, that's his answer. Roughly the sec, the beginning of the second century uh, is when Judaism actually changed their theology at that point, again, to as part of a response you know, mm -hmm. to, to Christian claims. So this is, this is a whole field. You, know, you get guys like Bart Ehrman and other critics that just want to say, oh, this idea of Jesus as deity, was, that was so much later, and they had to fiddle with text you know, while they were transit. Look, this is the intertestamental period. Right. It's the Hebrew Bible. And I'll go one step further. Again, if you're, if you're collecting references, Benjamin Sommer, S-O-M-M-E-R, has a, a really interesting book called The Bodies of God. Mm. He actually traces the idea. I mean, again, he's a Jew. He teaches at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. So he's not a Christian. He's a Jew. And he'll say point blank in the book that the idea of a trinity is completely compatible with the Hebrew Bible. Mm. And he even traces Godhead ideas, God having more than one body. I mean, he, he's a Jew, so he sounds like a modalist. Mm. But he, he's saying God as more than one person simultaneously. He goes back into Akkadian sources mm. for how, how Assyrian and Akkadian religion had these same kinds of conceptual categories. Mm. So th this was known in the ancient Near Eastern world. This, this is not a... Uh, uh, sort of an innovation or some kind of weird thing that the Christians came up with. And the Christians are just looking at their Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew Bible, you know, in, in this respect is consistent in terms of this, this religious idea mm. that, that deities could be more than one person at the same time and in different locations and all that. It, mm. It's not a, it's not a contrivance. Mm. If someone in the ancient world would have, if they were literate, you know, would have, would have run into this. They would have been familiar with this. The mm. only thing really different is when Christians start running around and saying, oh, we know who the second power is. It was this guy you just put on the cross. Mm. That was a little too much. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that makes you look pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, that was offensive. Mm -hmm. but, but the idea of having a, a second Yahweh figure, Gishan's book, just goes through all, I mean, there were, there, there's probably eight, nine options that the Jews discussed in their writings mm. where the second power might be. Mm. Um, you know, so it's not, it's not something Christians invented. I see. It, it is something they applied to Jesus. Mm. 
You said there's a Charles. Yeah, Brich. Charles Gieschen. It's G G I E S C H E N. Okay. He has a book called Angel Amorphic Christology, and he goes through the Second Temple literature for mm-hmm. the uh, the Second Power candidates. They're usually either you know glorified humans or specific angels uh, in in Jewish writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, the, the Christians again they're raising their hands. Hey, we have another option. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I get excited with this kind of discussions and and learning more about ancient uh, what's the right term ancient deities for example yeah how they function um, and one of the terms that I learned from uh, from resources reading online uh, from from your your blogs and the and the PDFs that I found online that you've written uh, this is one of the topics that really excites me but then when i share with some well how do you know there are that many gods in old testament well have you heard yahweh the name yes how about baal yes well you know now (laughs) at least (laughs) you know what 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 a culture calls a a deity or you know a spirit being Hmm. is is really incidental they're going to be called something because of geography or you know some perceived attribute or something like that, some event. It, it, what what you're really you know angling for is that look, you know Israelites understood this. They had the same worldview. And if you've read in, in the unseen realm, you'll Deuteronomy thirty two eight and nine is a big deal. Mm-hmm. That, that's the Old Testament explanation for why we have other pantheons in the first place. Um, it becomes a really big touch point in Old Testament theology. Um, why it's Yahweh against the other gods and Israel against the nations. Mm-hmm. The whole concept of cosmic geography, like the princes in Daniel, that comes from somewhere. It comes from what happened at Babel, Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Mm-hmm. It, it bleeds into the New Testament in a number of different ways. Again, I, I, I have to recommend, you know, read Unseen Realm sure. to, to get the lay of the land there. But most Christians are are quite unaware uh, of it even even scholars if you're not if you're not an old testament semitic guy where you're sort of forced into this turf mm-hmm. you know your you, chances are you're never going to get exposed to like a divine council or, or that idea it's gonna it's gonna sound really foreign for some it's scary <laughs> yeah to some it's scary again because we we think you know elohim has to be a specific set of attributes mm-hmm. But, I mean, who's going to sit there and look at all the references to Elohim? Mm-hmm. There's a few thousand of them. Right. <laughs> but, again, right. It, it, it's kind of obvious. They're, they, they use it of other beings that they know are lesser mm-hmm. than the God of Israel. So it's not about a set of attributes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just a spiritual being. That's why they can use it very elastically. Mm-hmm. But then they take great pain to distinguish Yahweh from all the others. Mm-hmm. He is unique. There's only one. Mm-hmm. Uh, only one of those. Hmm. Dr. Heiser, thank you so much for your time and uh, joining me on this episode. And thank you for sharing your expertise on this topic. And I hope and pray that this topic will be helpful to many who are listening and that they would learn and understand what Septuagint is saying and what's behind all that. So once again, thank you. And I hope to have more uh, interviews or podcasts with you, uh, if you will. So, I hope to see you again sometime soon. 
Thank yeah, you so absolutely. much. Yeah, thank you.